We just have to, you know, work together as a community to understand that the future is going to be complex and where is the correct application for each of these technologies that we have, that we are developing. You know, it's an exciting time. Like you're right. Physics traditionally has not been part of the conversation. I think it should be in the future. But at the same time, we have a lot to learn about how things are managed so that the solutions that are being proposed are effective. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. At the recent APNIC 54 meeting, we got the chance to sit down with keynote speaker Alexander Ling, director of Singapore's Quantum Engineering Program, in his offices at the National University of Singapore's Centre for Quantum Technologies. In this episode, Alex will give us a brief 101 on quantum networking, given it's still a relatively new concept even though it's been in development for quite some time, and discuss the use cases for it in the next three to five years and beyond. Alex, welcome to Ping. All right, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. We're very happy to have you on the show and at APNIC 54 to give your keynote from HTTP to HTTPQ in reference to quantum networking that queue. For those listening who haven't seen your presentation yet, we'll put a link into it in the show description, and I highly recommend you check it out to learn the fundamentals of quantum networking, which is starting to migrate from the lab to the real world, something that we're going to explore a little further in this episode. So because this is a relatively new field for many in the networking world, could you first begin by giving us an overview of what a quantum internet is? A quantum internet essentially is the ability to distribute quantum information across large distances. Now, quantum information is a relatively new concept, right? The research has been going on for maybe about three decades, but we're just starting to, you know, see some actual uh, demonstrations of this. Now, quantum information is essentially correlations, right? Imagine that you have systems that can be correlated at a fundamental level. And the question would be, how can you distribute these correlations over long distances? So that's one way to think about quantum information. Now, a key component of a quantum internet is a quantum bit. How does this differ from a regular bit? So a regular bit can only be in a state of zero or one, right? A quantum bit that carries quantum information can be also in a mixture of the zero and one state. Now, when I say mixture, it's not just a probability. It's a very fundamental concept known as a superposition, where you have some probability of zero and some probability of one, but then you can actually take this qubit that has this superposition and you can actually put it with other qubits And this information can actually interfere with each other so that you can actually get the information of zero and one instances of that flowing through this collection of qubits. It sounds very counterintuitive, and it is. But the interesting thing is that now we can actually demonstrate these things in the laboratory. And more and more, we are trying to demonstrate this in the real world uh, applications. Now, interference isn't something you want when transporting packages. What do you mean by interference in this respect? Well, one of the fundamental concepts in quantum mechanics 
is that the information can flow as a wave, right? And so if you have lots of these qubits put together, they can actually be made to interfere in a particular way so that the outcomes can actually appear at some qubits and the outcomes don't appear at other qubits. So this is one way in which information can flow through a collection of systems. Now, this interference effect is actually very powerful, and it can actually be used if you're trying to build a quantum computer, right? But it can also be a weakness because in the sense that these qubits can also interact with the rest of the environment, and information from the environment can flow in, or information from this qubit collection can flow out. So in that sense, it's a double-edged sword. You need to be able to isolate your qubit system from the rest of the environment so that in the interactions or the information flowing is controlled and isolated. But it also means that if you don't do that well, you get a lot of noise. So this qubit system is coupled to the environment and then you lose this information. You lose what we call coherence. Right? So this is, this is a challenge that the research community is working very hard to solve. And if you follow the uh, literature, we're getting better and better at that. Uh, for example, if we talk about quantum computers, you can see that there is uh, talk about putting together systems of qubits that are now in the dozens, 50, 60 qubits. And in the next few years, we may be looking at hundreds of qubits being, being assembled. And so this is a, a major technical challenge of how to keep this quantum information within a quantum computer and isolated from the rest of the environment. So taking a step back, this idea of qubits, can it transport more than a one and a zero? I mean, it transports a one and a zero at the same time, doesn't it? Yeah. So what is the benefit of a qubit compared to a classical bit? So I guess in terms of information processing, a very naive view would be that because it's in the superposition, it could actually be accelerating the way you are handling the information. So in terms of information processing, there are certain tasks where we can show that there is a speed up okay, compared to a classical processor. Now, in terms of information transfer, however, that is much more challenging. Typically, what you want to do is you want to transfer the state from one quantum computer to another one. And that is actually quite difficult. We don't completely know how to do that yet, okay? What we can do at the moment is we can transfer individual qubits. We can do that relatively well. And over there, when we talk about the application of individual qubits, it's not so much about computing yet. It's more about using these qubits to generate secret encryption keys, between two sites that are far apart. So at the moment, we are quite far from a quantum internet because we are only talking about distributing individual qubits. We'll get back to applications soon, but to dive a little deeper here, in this distribution, you're trying to make this as user-friendly as possible, which includes using current networking infrastructure. Otherwise, like we've seen in previous new technologies that have required specific infrastructure, you're going to lose the attention of a lot of people very quickly. So are you looking at transporting on regular fiber optics and wireless technologies? That's right. So I think when we talk about the quantum computer, right, the qubit system can be many types. 
It can be atoms, it can be ultra-cold electrical circuits, which are superconducting. But when we want to transfer the information, we have to come back to the electromagnetic spectrum. At the moment, the most efficient way to transfer this information across long distances would be optical, through optical fibers. We are not yet thinking of wireless or microwave, simply because the detectors are not good enough. Right? So we do have, on the other hand, single photon detectors that are quite good. And so you can actually have single photon detectors up to like 100 kilometers apart, and you can actually detect single photon events between these two sites at a rate at which is useful. And that's even with regular traffic flowing through the network too? So I think at the moment, most of this traffic is actually isolated from the quantum channel. Most of the literature will talk about a dedicated optical fiber. And the main challenge is noise. If you actually transfer your qubits to the C-band, for example, and you have live traffic, then what's happening is that the isolation between the different channels in the C-band, typically maybe about 20 dB of isolation, it's not sufficient. So some of this noise from the other communication channels will fall into the quantum channel. And because we are detecting these qubits one photon at a time, you get a lot of noise. So your signal-to-noise ratio goes down, and you can't really do that. So at the moment, a lot of people talk about dedicated optical fibers. But one thing that we're trying to push in Singapore is we're experimenting with a different band in the optical fiber called the O-band. And it seems to work relatively well. We can actually uh, isolate some of the C-band traffic from the O-band relatively well, and we've shown that it actually works. Fantastic. That's really good to hear. Let's move on to applications. So the applications that you're developing here at the Center for Quantum Technologies revolve around quantum cryptography and quantum key distribution. Have you chosen these as they are applications that are forecast to be in practical use within the next three to five years and are relatively simple in terms of the amount of content that passes over the network? The research into the quantum internet is just beginning. And in order to have a quantum internet, you do need to have devices, really working quantum devices at the far ends. We don't have those devices yet. So in a way, it's a little bit too early to talk about distributing large amounts of quantum information from one site to another. But if we take one step back, we see that if you're only distributing qubits at the single photon level, there's already a very nice application that we call quantum key distribution. You're using this, this flow of, of single photons to actually generate an, a secret encryption key in a way that's actually robust against computational attack. So no matter how algorithms or computer hardware would change in the future, this method of distributing a secret key would be safe. So we think of it as, a, as having forward security. Now, the main reason why we are using that as an application is that it also protects against the fact that the quantum computers that are being developed might actually provide computational attacks on today's encryption methods. So in order to prepare for that, we should begin to secure the communications we have today. The model that we are worried about is where someone is harvesting the, the data today and then 
waiting for when the quantum computer becomes available to actually crack it, right? So it's like collect now, decrypt later types of attack. If you can actually transition to a key distribution method that's secure against that, then we can put another layer uh, of security into to protect our communication privacy. So that's the main reason why we're pursuing that. And Singapore is a great place to do that because we have a lot of interesting use cases. We have lots of data centers where we're transferring information. We have lots of potential, you know, high value commercial traffic also being exchanged. We have the financial sector, the logistics sector. There's also a lot of effort now to, you know, transfer commercially relevant data to data centers for processing, to use the cloud resources for that. And these things all need to be protected. So what we're trying to investigate is how quantum key distribution can add an additional layer of of protection. So using the current equipment we have, or is there a need for quantum-specific equipment? To do this, you need first the the fiber infrastructure. Singapore is very good at that. We have very good fiber penetration throughout the island. And the other thing is you can actually buy today commercial appliances that can perform quantum key distribution, right? Now, these are probably the earliest generations of these devices, and there will be more advanced devices coming in the future. But it's already very interesting to use these first appliances to work out the kinks, you know, in the operations and to understand how an architecture can be built up around it. And this is where we work with uh, commercial vendors and also with the end users to actually understand how this technology can be used effectively. Okay, that's good to hear. And it's understandable that it's still early days. We'll talk a little more about the challenges of taking something from the lab to the real world soon, but sticking to the application of quantum networking, I'd like to talk about the double-edged sword of quantum cryptography and quantum computing. We know that quantum computers can theoretically crack cryptography that we have in place today, but will they be able to crack quantum cryptography? I think that's a very interesting question. And it's a little bit hard to answer that because quantum computer research is just beginning. So we know that you can crack the encryption methods that we're using today, right? And so there's a search going on for new algorithms that might be resistant to a quantum computer. Whether or not they will stand the test of time, we have to see. Now, coming to the question of can a quantum computer crack quantum cryptography? In this particular case, quantum key distribution. I think the answer is probably not. Okay? The main reason is quantum key distribution is a physical method by which you are distributing the secret keys. And the security, if you would, lies in the fact that when you're distributing you know, individual photon, any attempt to actually measure the state of this photon when you don't actually know what information it's carrying would actually introduce noise into the state of the photon. So when the two parties who are trying to carry out this key distribution, they're trying to measure correlations between their sites, they're actually going to notice these eavesdropping attempts, right? Because site A would actually be preparing the photon in some way and transferring over to site B. And if there was an eavesdropper in between, whatever has been prepared on site A would already be, be modified. And so when, when the two sites start to 
try to carry out the communication, they're going to notice that there's a lot of errors. And this tells them that, okay, probably this set of keys has been compromised and we should just use a different set that doesn't have the errors. Wow. So this is real-time security check of the security procedure you have in place. Is, is there any example of this at the moment in key distribution? I think conventional technologies don't have this ability. This is a, a very unique ability that's conveyed by the, the quantum nature of working with single photons or working with single qubits. So it's, it's a nice advantage. And part of the research that we do in Singapore is also trying to understand whether there are other applications, like in monitoring the network, that doesn't really involve generating a secret key. But just using, just distributing these photons and, and seeing when they return, what their properties are like. Right? This is a way of using this technology for you know, monitoring the network, and perhaps we can use it for other types of sensing applications as well. Could you talk more on that point, Alex? In this podcast, we talk a lot about measuring the internet and its health. And people who are interested in the field are always looking for new methods to measure their network and the internet. So how could measurement be inbuilt within such a network and what would they be measuring? Perhaps one of the things we, we might be able to do is check whether you know, the fiber infrastructure, for example, is it changing in length right, in ways that are unexpected? Right? Because we can actually measure quite accurately things like the time of flight or the photons. Or if you're using a different kind of qubit system, you may be able to actually get the back reflections and then interfere with some of the qubits that have been stored on the transmitter side. And you can do what we call interferometric measurements. Um, these things can actually tell you like whether the, the state of the physical infrastructure is changing. Perhaps someone might have put in a new piece of optical fiber that is not optimal, you can actually pick this up because these qubits are very sensitive. They, they do interfere with, with the environment. And when you get them back and you, you study their properties, you can actually see that, oh, uh, there has seemed to have been a change with the baseline that you collected at some earlier time. So these are things that we are still working through. It remains to be seen how they can actually be applied effectively. I'm interested to know if there is any research into self-sensing quantum networks. So the network is able to understand and adapt to these less than ideal environmental issues along less optimal routes. And instead of it providing feedback and alerting of an issue, it can make changes intuitively. You could do that with quantum communication. The question is, should you? Because I think in terms of some of this testing of the, the network, right, could also be done with classical light. I guess the question would be to try and find the niche use cases, right? I think there are certain situations where you want to monitor the network without announcing that you are actually monitoring the network. For example, if you are distributing you know, photons, quantum photons, they are at the single photon level, and sometimes you can even operate them asynchronously so that you don't know when the next photon comes out. But because they are correlated with the source, you are the one who knows that there's a photon supposed to come back at a particular time. Any adversary who's trying to temper the system can't actually predict when these photons are coming. So it makes it a little bit more challenging for them to actually fool you, right? So 
the question would be where is the correct place right, to apply this quantum sensing technologies? Uh, that's still an open question for research. Yeah. I think it's possible to do what you're saying, like to do the self-sensing and to send information back and say, try another route. Because the quantum signals can detect measurements like changes in dispersion, changes in polarization. They can tell you whether there are big disturbances in the, in, in the fiber. For example, if you do interference measurements, you can see that there's a lot of noise in the quantum states coming back. But some of these things can also be done using classical techniques. So the question would be, where is the correct place to apply the classical systems and where would you want to apply the quantum systems? Right? So finding that those use cases are interesting. There's a lot of things that quantum systems can do, but just because they can do so doesn't mean you should always use them. That's a good point to make. Sticking on this topic of internet measurement, is there any concerns that classical ways that we measure networks may interfere with quantum networks? Yeah, it might be uh, the question of how to actually coordinate when you're sending quantum information, when you're sending classical information. Let's go back to the application of quantum key distribution. So quantum key distribution is a very unique type of communication because you only need it to occur for certain periods of time. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to generate a secret key and then you only have to refresh that secret key periodically. We are not refreshing our encryption keys every second, but far from that. So if you think of quantum key distribution as a, a type of buffered operation, then you can actually work into your network like, okay, this is a period of time when I'm going to do QKD and then the rest of the time I'm not going to do that. And you can do other things with, with the, the physical infrastructure. So I think it's a matter of, of network architecture and coordination. That makes sense. I know that particularly with key distribution, how measurement would impact on security systems as they would be fingerprinting and that could come through as noise disruption. So it's about understanding the difference between this type of disruption and malicious disruption. We've talked about how we can imagine a quantum internet in practice. What are some of the challenges with making theoretical research like this practical? Like taking this from the lab to the real world? Right. So we often start with theory, right? We, we have models of how the qubits should behave. And then we, we go to the lab and then we try and implement those qubits. So a lot of the research in the last 30 years or so has been you know, taking these models that we have in, in literature and trying to build better and better qubits. And then once you have qubits, you try to connect them together to build a quantum computer. And in my case, where I do mostly quantum key distribution, it's about how to prepare the qubits in the best possible state and then transmitting them over some distance and then seeing whether they survive the transmission. Once you have a good understanding of that, then the challenge would be, okay, where am I going to deploy these quantum technologies? Right? And this is where you start talking to colleagues in engineering and in, you know, people who, who run you know, physical infrastructure and said, what are your environmental conditions? You know, what, what are the optical fiber standards that you're using? And then you try and design them way that would survive these conditions. I'm very happy to say that some aspects of this technology is quite mature now. I'll give you an example. One of the most interesting 
quantum communication technologies we have is based around something called entanglement. And the simplest type of entanglement is where you have two photons that share these quantum correlations. Now, it turns out that the process in which we are making entangled photons, where we take an optical crystal and then we pump some light into it, and what happens is that some of these pump photons actually get converted into these entangled photons. So it's from one photon to two. Now, that sounds really exciting, right? Except that if you look in the market, there's already a technology that's doing that, just that it's doing it in the reverse. This is the green laser point. A lot of our green laser pointers actually take uh, light from a strong laser, combine two photons into one, and produce a, a higher energy photon that's visible to the eye. The physics is the same, and people have engineered these things to be very small and compact, even battery-operated. And so using those lessons, right, we actually went back to the lab and we designed our entangled photon sources to, make, to be small, rugged, and compact. And they are actually you know, quite nice now. You, you can easily fit them, these sources, into you know, computer-mounted racks so they can be deployed in data centers or, or MDF rooms. And my own research team has even you know, designed one of these sources to fly on a satellite. So we demonstrated that this can be made small enough to fly into what we call a cube satellite. So the technology is really you know, improving. There'll be lots of exciting optimization that will happen in the next you know, five to 10 years as well. Nice. I've not heard of cube satellites. How big are these kinds of satellites and where are they stationed in the atmosphere? So cube satellites are 10 centimeter cubes, right? The, the basic block is a 10 centimeter cube, which is a complete satellite with radio, microcontrollers, sensors, and everything. The nice thing about the cube satellite is that it's a standard and you can actually put together these cubes into a larger satellite. So you can have a two-unit cube satellite, a three-unit cube satellite, and then you have a larger platform. So what we did was we, we built up a three-unit cube satellite and, and two units was dedicated to demonstrating our entangled photon source. And then they are deployed usually in low Earth orbit, about 500 kilometers uh, away from the Earth, simply because at the moment, most cube satellites don't have a very powerful radio, and so they have to be relatively close to the Earth. But that's nice because you also don't want satellites to be too far out in space because then they leave out there essentially forever and they contribute to space junk. If, if they're relatively close to Earth, they will come back down into the atmosphere and burn up, and so they sort of clear themselves out of the region in space. Fascinating. And the practicality of these cube satellites, what are you testing in terms of quantum networking? So what we're trying to do with a cube satellite is demonstrate that you can put some of these quantum sources in space and then we rely to actually distributing these quantum signals from space to ground. So we are trying to augment the fiber-based networks on the ground with satellite components. The main reason for doing that is we can't actually distribute quantum signals over very long distances today. I mean, practically, I think 50 to 100 kilometers for quantum key distribution, and we don't have a quantum repeater. We don't quite know how to build one yet. So a lot of concepts for quantum key distribution are involving satellites. So that, for example, if you have a QKD network in Singapore and you want to have one in Europe, you will use a satellite to actually link up this network. So the satellite is like a trusted node that would actually 
fly over Singapore, carry out quantum key distribution, then fly over Europe, do the same thing. Now it has a pair of keys, one for Singapore, one for Europe. You can actually mix them together and broadcast the result such that only Singapore and Europe can actually reverse it privately. Our Chinese colleagues have actually demonstrated this. They have a large satellite called Mishus, and they've demonstrated a lot of the primitives of quantum key distribution from space. So it's already a proven technique. The question now is how to actually make the technology more effective by using smaller satellites. That is amazing to hear how far along this research is, even though for most of us, this is the first we've heard of this technology. It seems this migration from the lab to the real world has been a lot faster than previous innovations in the world of networking. Is that the case? Well, maybe. Um, I would almost argue that the QKD technology that is commercially available was mature maybe 20 years ago. But, you know, it was a matter of also educating the market, the end users, like, why do you need this? How is this going to be used? It takes a while. But I think, you know, there's a growing awareness that the technology is not as immature as people might think it is. And, and with, with more and more demonstrations, uh, more showcases, we think the uptake will, will improve in the future. And this is one of the main objectives of our National Quantum Safe Network in Singapore, where we are trying to show possible end users, interested parties that you know, the technology is robust, that uh, we can run it 24-7 so that they gain the confidence that if they were to install this in their production environment, <laughs> they, they wouldn't run into, you know, problems on reliability. And that's been a pitfall of science and research in the past, where if you keep it too close and don't promote it to and collaborate with the market, then come launch, it's an unknown and you come up against the need to adapt it to the needs of the market. On this point, can you discuss the multifaceted and cross-industry requirements required to make a quantum network viable? I think let's talk about a QKD network instead. All right. So in order to make a QKD network viable, you, you need several pieces in place. You need an infrastructure provider. You need the, the appliance providers for sure. But you also need people high up in the, in the stack, for example, cybersecurity teams who understand how to actually manage and use the quantum keys that are being produced. I think one of the things that have been holding back the deployment of the technology was that for a long time, we knew how to distribute the keys, but then it wasn't quite clear how you would use it, <laughs> right? What application would actually consume these keys? Do you have a standard interface for passing the keys from the appliance to the next layer of the applications? So these things needed some time to be worked out. And beyond that, then you need people who want to actually understand that, okay, I have some applications that need forward security and this is how I actually use it. Again, coming back to the question of where will you apply this technology? I would say that, again, you have to be careful about it. It's not a question of, putting this uh, technology into every application. Primarily because we are still talking about distributing qubits that require an optical fiber, right? Or at least line of sight. It's not a wireless technology yet. So we are far from saying there will be a QKD device on every cell phone, for example, or on every IoT device. For that, we need a different approach uh, to cybersecurity. And perhaps over there, you don't need QKE, 
because maybe the data that's transferred over there doesn't need forward security. So again, you know, the cybersecurity you know, environment in the future is probably going to be mixed. It's like a mixture of algorithms that are resistant to a quantum computer, but also at certain aspects, you want to have QKD augmenting that. So finding where this, the appropriate places to, to apply the technology is actually one of the main tasks that we have today to ensure that our communications is robust and resilient uh, in the future. Yeah, it's an interesting time to, to find out where are the, the actual applications. Do you feel also as part of this cross-industry, this is physics also being introduced into a sphere that hasn't had much to do with it in the past? How do you get a, the industry to accept the need for physics and also the extreme complexity that comes with physics? I mean. Will we need to have physicists as part of our network operation centers? I think in the future, when you talk about a quantum network, some understanding of the physics would be important, right? I think some of these teams will probably have to employ industrial physicists to be working with them. But I think the important thing is we have to take a multidisciplinary approach to understand that the cybersecurity environment in the future is going to be rather complex. There's going to be a lot of advances in computational technology. Some of this is going to be enabled by quantum hardware. So having a good understanding of the, the threat model first is important. And I think physics has a role to play there. And after that, it's a matter of having an open and honest discussion about what the mitigation procedures we can do. Right? I, I think. Sometimes, you know, when I'm part of these conversations, it's always like, uh, we don't need any quantum security. We can do everything, you know, using algorithms. Or sometimes other chem would say, oh, we can do a lot of things in quantum. But, you know, my own personal view is that it is not one or the other. It is going to be a blend. And we just have to, you know, work together as a community to understand that the future is going to be complex and where is the correct application for each of these technologies that we have, that we are developing. You know, it's, it's an exciting time. Like you're right. Physics traditionally has not been part of the conversation. I think it should be in the future. But at the same time, we have a lot to learn about how things are managed so that the solutions that are being proposed are effective. Well said. Thank you so much for joining us on Ping, Alex. It's been enlightening and hopefully this is the start of more discussions on this fascinating topic that is quickly becoming a reality that we need to be aware of and taking steps, as you said, as a community to make it a success. Right. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone who's made it this far. As mentioned at the top of the show, you can find a link to Alex's keynote presentation at APN54 in the episode description, which I highly recommend taking a look at to get some more visual understanding of concepts like qubits. We intend to follow Alex's and other research in this field on quantum networks here on the podcast and the APNIC blog. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss those stories as well. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. Also, check out the new Measurement at APNIC mailing list to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, and or seek feedback from either community on your research measurement project. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.